0: The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org.
1: Amen. So glad to have you all with us today. And if you hear the pounding on the roof a little later, then I know that either you are the ones that didn't check the weather forecast before you came, or you're the ones that really love the Lord and you're here no matter what, right? Because there's a lot of people that's worshiping at Bedside Baptist this morning. Or... Uh, or if you're Catholic, Our Lady of the Sofa, but uh, they will find their reasons. They will spiritualize the reasons they need to stay home. I remember—I uh, don't know if it was a comedian or somebody—told me one time that when they were in college, they named their bed the Word, and so they had this early morning Bible study, and they would call them and say, "Man, you come to a Bible study, go, man. I'm in the Word this morning. I think I'm gonna be here for a while." So you got to over spiritualize things. So. Uh, you know, you can't really. Sometimes in life, when you're in Christian culture, sadly, you have to over-spiritualize things, or else people will look down on you. You can't just wake up and say, "You know, I think I want a Big Mac today. Maybe I think I want more than one Big Mac. I want two Big Macs. I might get to eat more than two. I I, I might get to swim through a truckload of them today. You know, somebody would be like gluttony. He's in sin. Cast the demon of secret sauce out of that boy, right?" <laughs> so to overcome that, you always have to over-spiritualize things, and so instead of just saying what you want, you have to start out and contextualize it a little different. You have to come to then with a stern look on your face. As I lay sleeping, an angel of the Lord appeared unto me and said, take thyself from thy horizontal and recumbent position into the world of men, and there unto the land of the golden arches. And once thou hast arrived, purchase unto thyself two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun, yay! And be ye filled in my name. You know, not only will you not get criticized, they'll go with you. It's Jesus. Let's all go. You know, let's get a Big Mac. Sadly, a lot of times in church, that's the way things are. We get over-spiritualize things. If you have your copy of Scripture, turn to Romans chapter nine. We were picking back up in our study of the book of Romans. And we come to a very difficult passage here in chapters nine, 10, and 11, are the kind that as a pastor and teacher, uh, you're very tempted to skip because it can go several different ways. And there are feelings that people have in one direction or another. Matter of fact, whole denominations are built around perspectives of these passages right here. And so let's read the first five verses, if you will. That's what we're gonna look at today. And I want you to hear Paul's words here. He is obviously not trying to over spiritualize anything. You have to understand that he's writing this from the context of a broken heart. As he thinks about all that he's learned, everything that he said to this point and where he's going, he starts with these words. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So this is how Paul starts off this very difficult passage here. And honestly, chapters 9 through 11 are very puzzling. Um, So much so that you could actually take them out of the book of Romans, and you could go from chapter 8 to chapter 12, and it actually seems seamless. Look at how he ends chapter 8. Watch this. Chapter 8, verse 37. Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Twelve one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see how those two just go right perfectly together? So Paul feels compelled to tell us something here something that he is extremely emotional about. And to understand where he's going, we have to understand where he has been. So what I wanna do is show you a video that's from the Bible Project that kind of uh, gives us a good summary of where we've been and where we're going in these next few chapters. Watch this.
0: Paul's letter to the Romans. Check out the first video where we explored who Paul was and why he wrote this letter and where we trace the core ideas of chapters 1 through 4. That all humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That this rescue is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create a faith-based multi-ethnic family of Abraham as his people. Now, in the remaining three movements of the letter to the Romans, Paul is going to develop these ideas even more. So, remember, Paul's exploration of justification by faith, that when people trust Jesus' death and resurrection was for them, they're given a new status, the right with God, they're placed in a new family, the covenant people of Abraham, and they're given a new future, the hope of a transformed life. Now Paul wants to show how this reality should reshape every part of our existence because being in this family means being a part of a new humanity that God is creating through Jesus and the Spirit. So Paul goes back to the first human character of the biblical story, Adam. His name means humanity. And Adam, like all humanity after him, has chosen sin and selfishness. And so everyone faces God's judgment because we've become slaves to sin's influence resulting in death. But then Paul contrasts Adam with Jesus, who he says is the new Adam, a human who lived in faithful obedience to God, shown through his act of sacrificial love. And now Jesus offers his life as a gift to others so that they can be justified before God. And so Jesus stands as the head of a new humanity that is being transformed by this gift, which leads him to chapter 6. Paul reminds these Christians in Rome that choosing to follow Jesus means leaving their old Adam-like humanity and entering into the new Jesus-like humanity. And their baptism was a sacred symbol of that transition. Their old humanity died with Jesus, and their new humanity was raised with him from the dead. So when a person trusts in Jesus, their life becomes joined to his life. What's true of him is now true of them. It's when people accept their identity as Jesus-like humans that they are liberated to become the whole-hearted humans who can truly love God and their neighbor. Now, if creating this new humanity was always God's purpose, Paul asks in chapter 7, What then was the point of God giving Israel the law, or in Hebrew, the Torah? Now, side note, when Paul uses this word law, he sometimes means the storyline and message of the first five books of the Bible, but other times he's more specifically referring to the hundreds of commands given through Moses and that are found in the Torah. The second meaning is Paul's focus here. What was the purpose of all those commands? paul says that the commands of the torah were good they showed god's will for how israel was to live but if you read the story line of the torah israel broke all those commands the more laws israel received the more they replayed the sin of adam and rebelled So even when God gave his people specific moral rules to obey, that did not fix the problem of the sinful human heart. And so paradoxically, these rules made Israel even more guilty. But, Paul says, that paradox is the point. God's goal was to make it crystal clear that it's evil that's hijacked the human heart. And that the Torah, good as it is, could not do a thing about it. But, Paul says in chapter 8, the solution has arrived in Jesus and the Spirit. And here's how. The commands of the Torah acted like a magnifying glass. It focused the problem of the human condition into one place, the people of Israel. But now Israel's representative, Jesus the Messiah, has paid for and dealt with all of that sin through his death and his resurrection. And now Jesus has released his spirit into his new family to transform their hearts so that they can truly fulfill the call of all the Torah's commands to love God and neighbor. And there is more. God's renewal of human beings is the first step of his larger mission to rescue and renew all of creation making it a place where his love gets the final word. now you can see how chapters 1 through 8 are one long flow of thought here but it raises some other questions if all of this was God's purpose what is the current status then of Paul's fellow Israelites who don't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah? how does this story fulfill God's promises to them? Well Paul begins in chapter Chapter 9, with his own anguish over fellow Israelites who don't think Jesus is their Messiah. And it leads him to reflect on Israel in the past from the Old Testament story. And he reminds us that simply being an ethnic Israelite, a physical descendant of Abraham, never made one automatically a faithful member of the covenant family. Paul shows us how God has always selected a subset from Abraham's family to carry on the line of promise. And his point is that now that line of promise is carried on by those who follow Jesus. He reminds us that for a long time people inside and outside Abraham's family have rejected God's will. He reminds us of the story of Israel and the golden calf and of Pharaoh's rebellion. He shows us how God was able to orchestrate events so that people's rejection of him actually accomplished his redemptive purposes. And so in chapter 10 Paul turns his focus to Israel in the present. The reason many Israelites reject Jesus is because they're basing their covenant relationship with God on their performance of the commands in the Torah. And so sadly, they don't recognize what God has done through Jesus to create a new covenant family on the basis of faith. And so Paul asks in chapter 11, what is Israel's future? Has God written off his people? No, he says. There are tons of Jewish people, including himself, who do recognize Jesus as their Messiah, but there are also a lot who don't. But God has been able to use their rejection for His own purposes. It's caused the gospel to spread even quicker and farther into the Gentile world, making the family of Abraham even larger and more multi ethnic. Paul describes God's covenant family as a big olive tree, and the rejectors of Jesus have been broken off, so to speak, and these Gentiles are like wild branches that have been grafted into the family tree. However, Paul says, one day, Jesus will be acknowledged by his own people. He doesn't offer any details about how. Paul simply trusts God's character and promise that he won't give up on his covenant people.
1: That was a good little summary, wasn't it? And it would have taken me forever to draw all that, so I wanted to show it to you. So it tells you kind of where we're going with this. Obviously, in this passage right here, Paul has a broken heart for his kinsmen for those who are of the nation of Israel, those who are blood descendants. And he's trying to help this church that has this schism, the church in Rome between Jews and Gentiles. He's trying to speak directly to his brothers at this point and say, this is what's going on. This is what's gonna be happening with Israel. Now, in chapters 9 through 11, again, this has puzzled commentators for a very long time. As a matter of fact, one commentator even says this. He says, chapters 1 through 8 culminate in a tremendous crescendo of confidence as Paul explains that God guarantees our final perseverance because, of our, because our salvation is not based on our will and our strength. So then we immediately think to ourselves, well, what's Paul going to follow this up with? Where is he going to go next after he's painted this incredible picture of our salvation? Will Paul launch into what the Christian life looks like? Maybe he will give further explanation about the giftings that God has given to people within the church and how they're supposed to use them. Or possibly how the church should relate to one another, how we are to relate to outsiders, or maybe even how we are to relate to the governing authorities that we may not agree with in our day and time. How do we do those things, right? No, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he takes what feels like a three-chapter detour to explore the past, the present, and the future state of the nation of Israel. Now, it's almost like, have you ever bought your kid something for Christmas or for the birthday and you had to put it together? Or, or, or men, your wife comes home with one of those nice furniture pieces, some assembly required, which means all assembly are required. And so you put all of it together and then there's those pieces that are left. And even if you follow the instructions, there's always inevitably, there's the stuff that's left over and you're thinking, I wonder what this is for. You think to yourself, what do I do with this? That's kind of what you do when you approach these, these chapters here. Because like I said, you could flow straight from chapter eight into chapter 12. And so chapters nine, 10 and 11, you, a lot of commentators approach it and think to themselves, what, what do we do with this here? How do we handle this? But there are some very interesting characteristics of this passage of Scripture. Number one, it is saturated from quotes from the rest of scripture matter of fact there are 28 citations from the old testament here paul is showing us how the old testament is connected to this new testament revelation through jesus christ he wants us to see that god's master plan has always been the same it was stated in the old testament and it was revealed to us in the new testament and so while paul goes way back and comes back and forth within this context of israel and the gentiles It would be very easy for us as we study this to think that they are his focus in this passage, but that's not even true because God is mentioned in some form or fashion 34 times in these three chapters. Matter of fact, one commentator says it this way. He says the whole letter is about the way God is fulfilling his ancient promises in and through Jesus and what this will mean in practice. Now, Obviously those two points right there don't encompass everything that these three chapters present to us, but it does give us a framework that we can lean on as we work our way through this difficult passage. But there is a greater reason that Paul is writing here, and that's what we wanna focus in on. That is to defend the gospel against a false charge. And we hear that in his voice right there at the very beginning. Let's think about how Paul ended chapter eight for a moment. Think about this, Romans 8, 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. But you know that after those first century hearers heard this, especially the Jewish ones, they're beginning to think to themselves, you know, Paul, if that's true, then what about the Jews? Weren't the Jews God's called people? Weren't the Jews God's chosen people? If the Jews were called of God and chosen by God, then why is it that they're not accepting this gospel that you're preaching, Paul? Why is it that the Gentiles are accepting it much more readily than the chosen people of God? It seems, Paul, according to what you're saying, that God's not keeping his promise. It seems that he lacks mercy. It seems that he lacks the power to bring them home. It seems that God promised one thing, And yet seems to be delivering another. It seems that God has been unfaithful to the covenant that he made with Israel. How will Paul answer these charges that are obviously in the minds of many Jewish readers and people who are standing on the outside looking into the Christian church and listening to what Paul is saying? So before we move forward, we need to all forget whatever we already think for a moment, okay? Not not telling you to throw out everything that you've studied, but what I'm saying is as we've studied through this book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, it would do us well to just listen to what Paul has said in his context. In other words, we don't want to hear what we want Paul to say. We want to hear what Paul is saying, okay? And so... Paul realizes that these people that he's speaking about, these are very real flesh and blood people. These are people that we're not just discussing what religion they're gonna be a part of, we're literally discussing eternal consequences that these people will face. And you know, that's an important thing for us. We should never forget the humanity that's behind these chapters. It's very easy for us to flippantly talk about theology without thinking about the ramifications that that theology has on humanity. When we talk about the things that we believe of Jesus being the only way, uh, of the church being the, the, the chosen of God coming together, very easily we can forget that that means that many people will die and never know their purpose many people will never experience the glory of heaven. And, and even the other side of that, many people will experience the wrath of God. So that's not something we should treat flippantly, but it's something that we should approach with the same heart that Paul does. Do you hear that in his voice, in his language that he uses here, in the words that he chooses? I mean, he knows what he's talking about here will detrimentally affect those who never accept Christ as their Lord and savior. Look again at how he says this in verse one. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Why does Paul seem to be so upset here? Notice the troubled tone that he uses and notice how he goes back and forth with this. He first states it in the positive. I am speaking the truth in Christ. And then he speaks it or reiterates it in the negative. I am not lying. And then he calls on the Holy Spirit as a witness to the true emotion and intention of his heart. He says there, the Holy Spirit, he bears me witness. So, so why is Paul so dejected after chapter eight that ends on such a high note? and such great promises. Why does he open up chapter nine seemingly so dejected and emotional? Well, Paul identified himself in other writings as the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet he also evangelized Jews in every city that he went to. And so he faced a lot of opposition and a lot of persecution from his own. This was because he was preaching that gospel. And this gospel that he was preaching was the gospel that converted him from being a follower of Judaism to being a follower of Christ. You gotta remember, Paul was one time the great anti-Christian champion. I mean, he was the one that was going around rounding these people up. Matter of fact, on his road to Damascus, his conversion experience, when the Lord Jesus appeared to him, he was on his way to persecute more Christians. Then after his experience with Christ, He became one of the greatest champions of Christian evangelism. And this no doubt frustrated those who were so close to him on the side of Judaism. Those people who he walked with, who rode with him as they would go to persecute these Christians. Those who believed so fully that these people were errant, that Christ was not the Messiah, and that these people were dealing a false gospel. You can imagine the frustration they felt when their champion against these people has now gone to be their champion to promote this gospel that they think is so false. Matter of fact, at one point in Paul's missionary career, Paul became so frustrated that he chastised his Jewish brothers. He says in Acts chapter 13, verse 46 it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Do you hear the frustration in his voice? Well, that's because over and over and over again, every city he goes into, he would first go to the synagogues, he would proclaim the gospel and he would either get, Imprisoned, he would get stoned, he would get laughed at, he would get spit upon, he would get cast out of the city. And then he would go to the Gentiles and the Gentiles would accept him and love him and bring him on and we wanna hear more about this. And so he was having this great success with the Gentiles while he was always running into this negative perspective from his Jewish brothers. Now, even though we read this passage right here in Acts chapter 13, what you have to understand is Paul, even from that point forward, continually went to his Jewish brothers in every city that he went to. He never gave up on that. Yes, he was frustrated. Yes, he was in anguish because you know, they were not listening to him and they would not consider what he was trying to point out to them. And yet he would continually go back to them, but he would always find his success with the Gentile audience. And so... Even though he had that success, he didn't shift the focus of his ministry. It was first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Maybe part of the reason he did this was because he was greatly burdened to see his brothers cursed themselves over and over again from what he knew was true from his own experience. And every time he went into this place, he saw them become a curse because they kept rejecting Christ over and over and over again. And you can imagine how that would make him feel. And think about this for a moment. Don't you know there were some moments while Paul was walking away thinking to himself this, why me? Why me and not them? Why, Why did I get it? Why did I get the appearance on the road? Why did God want me when I was probably worse than any of these people? And he walks away from many of those synagogues thinking these are good people. Why did God allow me to understand this? And yet he's not allowing them to understand this. What's the difference in me and them? Don't you know he had those kind of thoughts as he was walking from city to city? Don't you know this has been stirring in Paul's heart for a long time? You see, Paul's upset because his brothers are accursed. Paul says, I would rather be accursed than them. And Paul uses that very specific word. In the Greek, it's the word anathema. Okay. Now, the word anathema means literally cut off. So, Paul, are you saying that the Jews are not God's chosen people? Paul is very careful to pick this word. As a matter of fact, he's the only person in the whole New Testament that uses this word. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, he uses it. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is is accursed. So no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Anyone who curses Jesus Paul says is anathema. All right? 1 Corinthians 16:22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O oh Lord, come. So anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus Paul says here is anathema, is cut off, is accursed. Galatians chapter one, verse eight through nine. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be, what does it say? Accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You know why people repeat things like that? Because they know the first one shocked people so much that they might walk away going, I don't think he said what I thought he said. No, let me say it again. And he says it again so that they know for sure that's exactly what he said. Let anyone who preaches a gospel different than the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Anyone who preaches a false gospel is anathema. So it's not as if Paul made this word up, right? I mean, he didn't come up with this. Where did he get it from? Well, when we look back to the Greek, uh, the Septuagint, the Old Testament written in Greek, translated to Greek, uh, when we see that word anathema showing up in the Septuagint, almost exclusively, it means something dedicated to destruction. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 17, it says the fierceness of the Lord's anger is anathema, right? Joshua 6, 17 describes it as something that's devoted to destruction. Zechariah 14, 11 says it's utter destruction. You see, Paul is speaking about real people. He's talking about flesh and blood here. They are anathema, devoted to destruction. Why? Because of their unbelief. And this is not something Paul is celebrating. This is something that is tearing him up on the inside. You know, again, I can't emphasize this enough. We should never forget that when we study these passages that we're talking about real people and real eternal consequences real eternal destinations your primary concern and questions as you approach these three chapters should not be am i pro israel or am i critical of israel your primary perspective should be this am i pro gospel am I for taking the gospel to the hearts of people, Israel and every other nation? Because that's what Paul is focused in on here. Now, yes, he's focusing in on his own nationality at this point, but before this, he's already included every other nation, every other tongue. He's saying, that's why Christ came to bring us all in. And yet his heart hurts for his Jewish brothers and sisters because they have rejected Christ in mass. And that's Paul's heart here. He's about the gospel. Look at what he has said there around verse 4. I wish I was devoted to destruction. I wish I was anathema through the fierceness of the Lord's anger as if I cursed Jesus, did not love Jesus, and preached a false gospel of Jesus rather than see it happen to my, he says, kinsmen according to the flesh. Do you see that? I wish that I could be cut off instead of them. I wish I could be the one who takes the brunt for rejecting Jesus instead of them. I wish I could could take the responsibility of preaching a false gospel instead of them. That's what his heart is saying there for his fellow Israelites. Paul is looking at Israel who has rejected her Messiah and yet they still complain that they are once more exiled outside the promised land, wandering in the wilderness. And the question here that we have to ask ourselves is this, does that mean that Israel is out for good? Obviously not. Why? Because Paul is a Jew. Paul is a believer. Now, it is all the more painful for Paul because he rightly realized that Israel is the son of God who should have received the inheritance of God. Romans chapter 9, look at at verse 4 specifically. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. See, it's almost as if Paul is re-asking the question, what advantage does the Jew have? You remember he asked that early on. Um... And the answer is adoption, glory, covenants, and the law, worship, and the promises, patriarchs, the Messiah. They had all of these things. And you see, these things belong to Israel, not to a Gentile church. This rules out what is referred to in our day and time as replacement theology. That's the belief that the church has replaced Israel. Okay? Now, That belief says we don't even worry about Israel anymore. We don't worry about the Jewish people because the church has taken the place of Israel. So you can go back and any promise made to Israel is now a promise made to the church. That's what we were talking about when we talk about replacement theology. And there are denominations that embrace replacement theology. But I want you to see very clearly in this passage, this rules out replacement theology. The church does not replace Israel in a one-for-one swap. And this is a very important point to the church at Rome. Why? Because when Paul was writing the letter of Romans, Jews were returning to the capital city. Remember, they had been exiled by Claudius for a time. Jews were now returning to a church at Rome that they had started to find that it is now all Gentile church. And now they have to learn to live together. Naturally, there were going to be some tensions running high. The Jews were telling him what they needed to do and how they needed to obey their law. The Gentiles were like, we're not doing that. This is our church now. And so these tensions, the schism was happening within the Roman church. Also, the Romans were continually suspicious of the Jews. There were so many different rebellions that occurred in Palestine. So many different rebellions. And so the Romans were always a little edgy during the feast times and when all the Jews would get together because they thought there could be another rebellion. And Paul is saying, I am not anti-Jew. I am pro-gospel for all. In fact, least we all forget, it is to Israel that belong the blessings. Well, again, look at what he says there. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. So first notice that Paul says very clearly, look at your copy of scripture. These things, what does it say? These things, what? Belong, belong, present tense, not past tense. He doesn't say these things belonged to and now don't anymore. He says these things currently belong to them. It's still theirs. Second, every aspect of God's plan of salvation can be found in Israel's history. So God adopted Israel out of every other nation on earth. The Old Testament is replete with all these different references to Israel as God's son. Israel is God's firstborn. There is a type of God's only begotten son that we see in Israel in the Old Testament. Matthew two fifteen says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And not, let's not forget that they were adopted. They were adopted through the covenants that God made with them. As God's firstborn, Israel was given the law to know what pleases God as their heavenly father by worshiping him and serving him. All these things Paul has highlighted. In fact, this is why they were called out of Egypt. Let's not forget that to Moses, God said this in Exodus chapter 8 verse 1. Go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Then they were given the law, right? After they were let go and they made themselves into the wilderness, they went to Mount Sinai and there they were given the law. They visibly saw a manifestation of God's glory while wandering in the wilderness. When God's glory rested on the temple, they saw all these things. They belong to them. Throughout Israel's history, God continually made them promises, right? Right? So when they're facing their enemies, God promised to be by their side. When they were in exile, God had a plan for them. When they were in despair because of their sin, God would send them a Messiah, a great prophet, a priest and a king. And so he did. He sent them Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And yet they still rejected the Christ. But that doesn't mean that Christ rejected them. As we're going to see next week, God's words and promises and adoption, they didn't fail. They were perfect in every way. Nevertheless, Paul was faced with the reality that many had forsaken God's promises. Many had forsaken his blessings. They rejected the Messiah, and so his reaction was one of grief. What Paul is emphasizing here for us is, it's not that God is done with the Jews, but he's also, what he's emphasizing is this. There's only one way to salvation, and it's not by being a Jew. It's by proclaiming Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It's accepting the invitation that the Holy Spirit gives to us to be his children, to accept the sacrifice that God has made for us through the person of Jesus Christ. That goes and supersedes any nationality. And so... Paul has this grief for those who have rejected the only way to salvation. First, Paul has this very palpable concern over the salvation of the lost. And and, you know, the question I want to start with is this, do we share that same concern? You know, we seem to oftentimes operate in what we could call a functional universalism. Now, I would, if I took a poll this morning and thought, how many of you believe in universalism? How many of you have embraced it? And universalism basically means everybody's gonna make it to heaven in some way, form or fashion, because God is love and God is merciful. So there's not a hell, everyone's gonna make it in there. I would say the majority of you, if you've been at this church for a while, um, that's probably not your view because you're coming to a gospel preaching church where we believe there's one way to salvation. So the next question would be this, If we truly believe that there are two different eternal destinations, why do we often act like it's all gonna work itself out in the end? Why do we not have a burden for the lost? Why do we not have a burden like Paul has for his kinsmen? Why do we not have that for ours? You know, we live in a very volatile political climate right now in America. And it's amazing how the church has gotten so involved in the vitriol When I want to say to you, we must come back to the perspective of Paul and say, yes, we have to stand for truth. We can't compromise on truth, yet we are also not gonna compromise on our love for humanity and recognizing that everyone is created in the image of God, no matter how deep or entrenched in sin or rebellion they may be, they are created in the image of God and I will not let anyone force me to hate. I'm gonna embrace a perspective of love no matter what they say about me, no matter how they may ridicule me, no matter how I may eventually be persecuted for standing true to what I believe, I'm not gonna let someone lead me to hate. And so Paul, when he understands the weighty consequences of rejecting Christ, he has this moment where he seems to be brought to tears. And he wishes that he could trade places with Israel. Even after meeting Christ face to face, he says, I wish that I could trade places with you. Even after being persecuted and beaten by these people, he says, I wish I could trade places with you. Here's the bottom line. He has a real heartbreak for the lost. Do we? Do we have a real heartbreak for those who are anathema in our culture? Those who are on the outside? Those who are living in rebellion? Or do we have disdain for them? That's a real question that we all need to wrestle with because that is the difference of being a true church of Jesus Christ and being just religious people it all comes back to what are you being motivated by and what things break your heart? The second thing is this, even though Paul is broken over his lost brothers and sisters, he refuses to bend the person or the work here. So we can think about the concept of hell and how even in the concept of hell, we can kind of fudge on that and we can kind of water it down. We could begin with a literal belief in hell because there's biblical evidence for that. And then we can say, well, you know, fire was a picture of consumption. So I think the biblical writers are creating a picture for us and it's not real. It's just a picture that those who are outside will be consumed. Wait a minute, that sounds pretty rough too. Uh, we go back to the passage where it talks about um, Gehenna and Gehenna was a very real place in that day and time. It was a a place where they burned trash and people literally lived in this place. These were homeless people that had nowhere else to go and they lived in the trash heaps and they would burn. So all day and all night, there would be smoke coming. There were fires there. And so when Jesus talks about Gehenna and the fires of Gehenna, he's talking about a very real place, but he's talking about a place where people are just kind of separated from that goodness. And like, well, you know, we don't really like that idea either. So let's just say hell is metaphorical. God loves everyone. So he's eventually going to save everyone somehow because God doesn't want them to experience that. So we end in universalism. Do you see that? We could start with a very literal perspective saying, thus saith the word of God. And as we reason and allow our emotions to come into it, then we end in a place where it is completely different than what we read in scripture. And so we bend God's word to go where we want it to go. Now, you can take any social issue you want today and you can find Christians, people who claim to be Christians within those groups, right? And they say, we are dedicated Christians, but yet they will interpret passages of scripture way differently than if you read it, you're like, I didn't get that out of that at all. I mean, I, this is what I see it saying. and. Where, where do you get that? Well, you know, here's this and here's that. We know that God is love and he's merciful and he's this and he's that. This is a different time period and we're much more advanced. And so what we do is we just put all the stuff in there and we water the whole thing down and we end up in a completely different place. Paul, however, does not. Did you notice that? Even though he is broken, even though everything in him wants to find a way for these people to be saved, he stands on the principle of what he knows the gospel says. He allows God's word to bend him instead of him bending God's word. He's allowing God to get Paul where God wants Paul to go. And when we think of the loss, the lost souls that we spend time around every day in school, our universities, our workplaces, our hobbies, the ballparks, when we are around those lost souls, my question is this, do we mourn like Paul? If we say, Lord, if you would allow me, I would take that person's place so that they could know you. I would step in and take all the condemnation and all of your, I would step in there and take that if they could just know you as their savior. Lord, You know what, that's a powerful, powerful thing to say and you can say it falsely because in the back of your mind, you're like, well, I know I really can't do that. That's not the way it works. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is if you really could, has your heart been broken enough? Number one, has your heart been broken enough for the loss? Number two, has your heart been broken enough for your own sin to realize I don't even deserve this? You know, if I took that person's punishment, I would be taking something that I deserve anyway. Why me? It's almost like Paul is the reverse Jonah here, isn't he? You remember the story of Jonah, right? I mean, he was like, God said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel to these people. <laughs> and so what does Jonah do? He buys a one ticket to not Nineveh, okay? Where do you want to go? Not Nineveh. That's that's my only request. Uh, Why? Why Why did Jonah not want to go? He knew God was merciful. He said, you know what? If I go and preach that, those people will actually repent. And I know you, you'll forgive them. And those people deserve destruction. Jonah said, God, you'll save the people. You remember eventually in the story, he said, I knew you would save those people. And what did Jonah say? Kill me. Paul says, God, if you don't save those people, kill me. Do you see the difference? Paul is mourning, but notice that he mourns with a trajectory of hope. I think that's how we should approach chapters 9 through 11, with a trajectory of hope. We mourn for those, Jews and Gentiles alike, from our perspective. We mourn for those who are without Christ, yet we do so with hope that somehow God will break through to them. That somehow God's hope will be bigger than their circumstances, bigger than their rebellion, bigger than their sin, just like it was in our own lives. The third thing is this, the story of Israel is not over. God is not in the business of writing people off. Paul is answering charges from the Jews. Remember this. The Jews are saying, Paul, you just wrote us off. You don't care a thing about us. Paul says, actually, I do care. Actually, I do love you. I do have hope for you. I think about you. And I actually wish I could change places with you. But I can't bend God's word to affirm how you want to live. Today, you know, the church is in a position to answer charges from the culture. Do you not hear it in the media soundbites, in the editorials, in the blog posts? The culture says to us, the church, you just write us off. You don't care about us. How are we responding to that charge? Do we say, I do care. I do love you. I do have hope for you. I think about you all the time. I wish I could change places with you. But I cannot bend God's word to affirm how you want to live. If you felt marginalized by the church, it could be a true situation. Maybe the church has mistreated you, but it also could be that the church has just been praying for you. And what you feel is judgment is actually the church's love because they want to be honest with you and tell you the truth of what they believe. Church, brothers, sisters, we cannot budge on God's word. No matter how much our culture changes, we cannot budge on God's word. We have to hope out of hope for those for whom our heart breaks. The fourth thing is this, Paul wished he could offer himself as a sacrifice you know what's beautiful about that paul's embodying the character of christ he's followed his lord for so long that he knew that jesus laid down his life for those who were accursed jesus laid down his life for those who persecuted him Jesus laid down his life for those who hated him, who thought, they, who thought he was crazy, who thought he was preaching a false gospel, all these same things, and yet Christ died for them. So as Paul proclaims these things, he's not just proclaiming them out of an emotional outburst. He's proclaiming these things out of wanting to be more and more like Christ, realizing at the same time he can't be anyone's savior. But yet, isn't it beautiful that he's followed after Christ? He's begun to embody the character of Christ saying, I would willingly lay down my life. Why? Because that's what was done for me. Why, why am I any better than what Christ did for me? Yes, if I could do it, if, if I was a worthy sacrifice, I would take your place. Why? Because that's what I deserve anyway. And that's what the Lord did for me. Paul's echoing that sacrifice of Christ. So today what we wanna do is end by celebrating that sacrifice with the Lord's Supper. And so we have the picture. You remember when when we take this Lord's Supper, when we drink of the cup and when we eat of the bread, we're not just retelling a story, we are participating in an event we are participating in the gospel. Jesus says, this is my blood that's spilled for you. Take it and drink it. This is the blood of the new covenant. He offers the bread and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Take it and eat it and remember me. Remember my pain, remember my suffering, remember the sacrifice and remember If you find yourself worthy to come up to this table and to eat and to drink, it's only because of one thing, because the Holy Spirit has confirmed to you that you may eat of it. If you come for any other reason, in essence, you're anathema because you don't understand this. You don't understand what it represents. And Paul warns people, hey, don't eat and drink of this unworthily Some have died doing so. This is real. This isn't just thinking about a story. This is participating. So the question is this, are we participating in the gospel or are we just merely proclaiming it? There's a big difference. So before you come and eat and drink today, I want you to spend some time just searching your heart The beautiful thing about our relationship with God is if we have just been preaching a gospel and not been living it, we don't have to go and prove anything to God before we can come up here and be worthy of eating and drinking this. All we have to do is say, Lord, forgive me. Give me your heart. Lord, I want to embody the picture of the sacrifice. Lord, I want my heart to break for those who are lost. I wanna break for those who are anathema. Lord, if there was a way, I want to get to the point where I would be willing to give my life up for those who are outside of Christ so that they may know because you are that true treasure and gift to me. So let's spend some time singing, reflecting, praying, and then we'll remember the blessing for the, um, for the uh, wine. As Jesus held up the cup, he said, Baruch atah ulhinu haolam Pri Hagophim. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. The rabbis had a saying, Where there is no wine, there is no joy. Think about the picture that Jesus created with that. Where there is no suffering, there is no joy. What joy he's brought into our life through his suffering. And maybe the suffering that you're going through today is a picture of that. Maybe God is allowing you to go through a difficult time because he's using you to bring joy to someone else. Likewise, he took the bread. Afikoman and he broke it and he blessed it. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground. A picture of the resurrection. Jesus, the bread of life, the Father bringing him up from the ground. What a beautiful picture of the promise that we have in the gospel as well. Treasure these things, church. Treasure these things because these are our spiritual inheritance think on these things ponder these things and when the holy spirit releases you to come forward come and partake in something that is so beautiful participate in the gospel psalms 116 13 says i will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the lord let's do that this morning